Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you've joined us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. So much to talk about today, almost all of it related to the New Hampshire primary, which we actually have results for. Congratulations, New Hampshire. You uh, are much better than Iowa in actually letting us know who won on the same day people voted. We're also sponsored today by Hydrant Drink Hydrant. Dot com for uh, 25% off your first order and use the promo code Martini at checkout. Brand new sponsor. Glad to have them, and we'll tell you much more about them in just a little bit. So, uh, Jim, uh, settled in last night between 8.30 and 9. Uh, the polls closed in New Hampshire at 8, and uh, it was Bernie by a few points over Buttigieg, who had a couple points over Klobuchar, who was the big surprise, and then Biden and Warren, actually Warren in fourth, Biden in fifth, way, way back in single digits, Nothing really changed the rest of the night. It got a little bit tighter between uh, Sanders and Buttigieg, but uh, no position ever changed. It was very consistent throughout the night, and uh, we're going to get into our good, bad, and crazy here. But uh, uh, third place is a ticket to ride, uh, as John Huntsman famously told us in 2012 before not even making it to the next primary. So uh, Amy Klobuchar is supposedly the big winner by finishing in third by crushing expectations. Crushed expectations like it was an office employee. <laughs> yes, like it was a like it was a Senate intern. All right, let's uh, let's talk about our our good Martini here. And Jim, that's that. There's uh, chaos here on the Democratic side. You've got all these people trying to present themselves as the moderate. There really aren't any moderates in this race, at least not anymore. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but you've got Buttigieg claiming to be a moderate. He's not. He wants to abolish the Electoral College, stack the Supreme Court, decriminalize all sorts of drugs, hard drugs, and everything else. Amy Klobuchar is a down-the-line liberal. Elizabeth Warren's clearly not even uh, in the conversation there. Biden thinks he's got the centrist lane. Bloomberg's now going for that. We'll talk about him later. But Elizabeth Warren comes in a distant fourth in the state that borders her state of Massachusetts. And uh, that was surprising. Not that she didn't win, but that she was so far off the lead. And so Elizabeth Warren goes out pretty early in the 8 o'clock hour last night uh, to give what was basically a concession speech. And she started with an interesting line here. She got uh, pretty critical of campaigns for getting too negative as we get into the contest here. And so she said this. We cannot afford to fall into factions. We can't afford to squander our collective power. We win when we come together. And so she says that, and you're thinking, okay, this was supposed to be a state where she was going to do very well. Didn't happen. She finished third in Iowa. She's she's seeing reality here. She's going to get out. No, no. We need to get behind the candidate who can bring everyone together, Jim. And that's her. And right after the unity talk, she decides to take a bunch of pot shots at everybody else. Let's just check the facts. Amy and I are the only candidates in this race who are not either billionaires or supported by super PACs. And unlike other candidates, I don't fund my campaign by spending time behind closed doors sucking up to wealthy donors. Ah, unity. Jim, uh, the uh, the best part about the, the Democrats here is that everybody thinks they're the one who can ultimately get it done. And as long as that's the case, we've got a free for all. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, on paper, you, you'd look at last night and say, ah, well, I guess Bernie Sanders is the new front runner and he has the best chance of winning the nomination. And I concur with that assessment. But it also the odds of this not having anybody having a majority of the delegates and the long discussed, long awaited, endlessly hyped, you know, 
this could be the year they have a contested convention. No, really, they really could have a, con- a convention floor fight this year. Um, the other thing I think is special about last night, you know, again, it's not that Warren, you know, she had finished ahead of Biden. Everybody's talking about how bad the bad shape Biden is in. Um, it's not just, you know, finishing fourth and a distant fourth. It's the trajectory. Remember, as recently as November, she was ahead in Iowa. As recently as November, she was ahead in New Hampshire. Um, she was arguably the national front runner or knocking on the door of being the national front runner last fall. And now she's got that third place in Iowa, which was eh, okay, you know, still in the ball game. Losing ground to Klobuchar in New Hampshire is bad. I don't think Nevada looks like a natural state for her. South Carolina was never a natural state for her. And none of the Super Tuesday you know, states were really good. This being, people argue about, you know, a good chunk of southern New Hampshire extends into the Boston media market. Um, you know, a whole bunch of our Democratic nominees in recent years have come from Massachusetts. John Kerry, Michael Dukakis. Some of our Republican nominees in recent years have come from Massachusetts, like Mitt Romney. If you're from a Massachusetts senator or, or lawmaker, you're supposed to do well in New Hampshire. And she didn't. And I don't think you can necessarily uh, begin the funeral preparations for her campaign, but the writing is on the wall. She needs some sort of big turnaround here, and it's not going to happen. And one of the things that's really satisfying about this cycle, you know, you go, when you have 20, was it 26 Democratic candidates at one point? You know that you're going to have 25 disappointments. Maybe somebody gets the consolation prize. Um, you know, Andrew Yang dropped out last night. I think Andrew Yang, having started with zero name recognition, can walk out of this saying, hey, you know, I wasn't supposed to do anything and I made a splash. I was in the debates till the end. Uh, I have an extremely motivated online supporter. So, hey, I'm not doing so bad. Everybody else, it's a pretty big disappointment. Uh, Beto O'Rourke, I don't think, I think it'll be a long time before anybody is clamoring for him to run for anything again. Uh, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Julian Castro, everybody comes out of this process actually kind of diminished. They, they look like they, they really didn't uh, enhance their stature or following within the party or anything like that. And I think for Warren, having just turned 70, this is it. Uh, I'd like to say that our, our old friend David Bonson uh, uh, finished her off, Greg. Um, <laughs> he's got his new book out. And I think that's what did it. I think that's more, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, I, I exaggerate slightly, but just an observation, like the stage was set for her this year. And she fumbled, and she fumbled very badly. Uh, and I don't think she makes a comeback from this. Will she still have her followers? Yes. Uh, you know, in, in the end, as I was trying to summarize everything in the Morning Jolt newsletter today, Elizabeth Warren did a really, really good job of speaking for one very important and very loud constituency within the Democratic Party middle aged, older, white collar women, generally in urban or suburban environments. And that's you know, that is one that is very, you know, uh, you know, prominent. It's a good donor group. It's uh, one that basically, um, you know, gets a lot of attention from the media. These are the folks who speak up, uh, university administrators, lawyers, those types. Um, but it's not enough. And I don't know if she ever really expanded out of that demographic. And the longer she's in it, she's going to hold on to that demographic and not let anybody else get it. So um, a whole bunch of people, I think, in the back of their minds are saying, mm, uh, Senator, Senator Warren, it might be time to, you see that exit over there? Might be time to head in that direction. If Warren does stay in here for at least through Super Tuesday, Jim, does she hurt Bernie most or uh, to just muddle things altogether? It's a really good question because on paper you'd say, oh yeah, right. You know, if, if Bernie is the most um, openly socialist and most leftward candidate, then she is probably just one minor step behind him. Um, I mean, here's the thing. I, I think out of all the approaches offered by the Democratic candidates, she was one of the most frightening ones to, to those of us on the right. 
what she was offering in terms of policy was not worlds apart from what Bernie Sanders was. But she didn't call herself socialist. She was basically going to give the, the progressives and the hard left and the folks who are openly socialist a big chunk of what they wanted. But she was going to she was that spoonful of sugar to make the, uh, the medicine go down. And oh, by the way, that's probably the first time anyone has ever compared Elizabeth Warren to a spoonful of sugar. Um, <laughs> you know, like, so, the, so you look at her numbers and where it drifted. Her numbers may appear to have drifted down as Klobuchar's went up. Their mentality was like that of the New York Times editorial. Right. Um, that, that you would endorse both of them. And towards the end, they said, you know what? I think we like Klobuchar more. And that's you can imagine a narrative being written in which Klobuchar is like the stalker that nobody sees coming. It, it just comes at you like a like a binder or a, a stapler thrown through the air and hitting you square between the eyes. If folks don't remember, there was a big story out months and months and months ago about how tough Amy Klobuchar is on her staff. She uh, is quite brutal verbally towards her staff and has been known to throw a few things, at least in the general direction, of staff members and other people, if not specifically at those people. All right, uh, Jim, let's talk about our new sponsor here, Hydrant, because, you know, if you're going to stay on the presidential campaign trail... It takes a lot of energy, and you're not going to be able to have the energy that you need if you're constantly dehydrated. And it turns out that about 75% of us are walking around every day chronically dehydrated. We're suffering needlessly, sometimes from headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. And it doesn't have to be that way, and that is where Hydrant comes in. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets, which you just mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes that your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc that help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide a perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There are no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. Formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And now for 25% off your first order, just go to drinkhydrant.com and enter the promo code MARTINI at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com and enter the promo code MARTINI for 25% off that first order drinkhydrant.com promo code martini all right jim let's move to our second martini our bad martini and you referenced it uh, briefly there in our first martini you know it's weird that uh the good martini is elizabeth warren not leaving the race usually our our good (laughs) martini is who's getting out and uh, we did get uh two dropouts uh last night we thought we had a third there for a while but Thankfully for all of us, Tom Steyer is staying in the race, which uh, shouldn't come as a huge surprise because Nevada and South Carolina is probably where he's actually going to register a pulse. But uh, we lost Andrew Yang, not literally, but we lost him from the uh, from the race last night because Andrew Yang is a guy who understands math. He even has the lapel pin uh, to talk about how he understands math, even though that's an acronym. But uh, he can see the handwriting on the wall. He knows what these results from Iowa and New Hampshire show, and he's not afraid to tell his supporters the truth. I am not someone who wants to accept donations and support in a race that we will not win. And so tonight I am announcing I am suspending my campaign for president. This is not an easy decision or something I made lightly with the team. Endings are hard. 
and I've always had the intention to stay in this race until the very end. But I have been persuaded that the message of this campaign will not be strengthened by my staying in this race any longer. Now, Jim, most conservatives didn't want Andrew Yang to be president. The idea of the universal basic income is not free market. It's not capitalistic. It's It's got a lot of big government tentacles to it, obviously. But while everyone else, or at least the vast majority of people on stage, were playing Oprah out there, I'm going to get the government to pay for this for you and this for you and this for you. Only Andrew Yang was out there talking about realities such as the vastly changing state of the U.S. economy into the fourth industrial revolution, as he talked about it, the modernization, the technical age, robots replacing workers on the assembly line and getting people ready for the economy that's emerging while everybody else was stuck on their talking points. Um, Again, I don't know how good of a president he would have made. He's obviously new to the political scene, which has its pluses and minuses. But the guy was talking about real issues, and we're going to miss that, I think. Yeah, uh, my colleague and Alexander DeSanctis wrote this nice little, you know, hey, thanks for running, Andrew Yang, uh, item in the corner yesterday. And, and as soon as the news came, it was a little bit of a surprise. He was not doing well, but it's not like anybody really figured he was uh, in the race to win the nomination. He was sending a message. He was trying to raise attention to certain issues. And I guess you know, I, I was surprised at how bummed I felt when this was happening. We're going to have another debate next, I think actually about two weeks uh, probably less than two weeks now. And, uh, you know, I kind of miss him. He was this old, you know, when he got called on, which was really rare in those first couple debates, uh, he was this breath of fresh air. And I've been trying to put my finger on it. And I think last night, um, as I was watching and the numbers not really change, <laughs> or I was watching the order of the candidates not really change, Van Jones, who has quietly turned into a very sharp observer of the dynamics on both sides of the aisle uh, on CNN, he talked about it and he said, you know, if you're in politics today, chances are you're angry at somebody, right? You're angry at billionaires. You're angry at the rich. You're angry at immigrants. You're angry at uh, the the conservatives. You're angry at the liberals. You know, you have the Wall Street, you know. Andrew Yang never seemed all that mad at anybody. He was concerned. You know, you you don't, the interesting, the other thing was that nobody would, no political consultant or no, no focus group would ever say, yeah, you should run for president focusing on automation and what it means for the U.S. economy in the long term. The only reason you do that is if you genuinely believe it. And it's so different. I mean, you know, Kate, maybe you'd see that automation traditionally gets one line in a candidate's speech about the economy for most campaigns. And you could tell Andrew Yang was thinking about this because he'd worked in it and because he'd spent his whole life in business and he spent his whole life in this you know, sector of the economy that, that most politicians are only familiar with in the form of a photo op, right? Most politicians think of infrastructure as a ceremony holding a shovel, and then they walk away. <laughs> they really don't think about it very much. Say <clears throat> Scott Walker and Foxconn or something like that. And you know that, that Andrew Yang came at this from a very different angle. He, he came at this from this private sector technical problem solver. And the first thing was that he was talking about something that most of the other candidates clearly hadn't even spent that much time to think about. And I think it's safe to say most voters hadn't really thought about. You have to be in this industry to see the kind of changes that are coming. And most people in the industry are just kind of, okay, well, this is what we're doing. And I guess society will just deal with it. Now, while this was happening, I'm going to reveal a little bit of discussions here at National Review. You know, Alexander DeSanctis is like, ah, I'm really going to miss him. Some of my other colleagues are like, universal basic income was a terrible idea. Universal basic income is basically the same, you know, just a different form of playing Santa Claus. 
and saying, but making people believe that the government has some Scrooge McDuck money bin that it can just tap into, uh, that it can use to hand out a thousand bucks to everybody uh, every single month. You know, look, this is you know, policy wise. He, he his his ideas had some pretty significant problems, at least for those of us uh, from the conservative point of view. But that having been said, you could very easily sit down, not only just picture yourself having a nice conversation with Andrew Yang, you could see yourself having a beer with him. I think one of my favorite metaphors of the entire uh, election cycle has been Yang's fear that America's institutions, the, the large, the government, the media, business leaders, the military, the courts, every one of them was slowly turning into the New York Knicks. <laughs> And every NBA fan in, in my, who's listening to this podcast, like, oh my God, I never thought it could be that bad. Lord, save us. You know, um, that's, you know, the New York Knicks are really, really terribly managed. It's an open secret that they're terribly managed and they refuse to change out of a sheer arrogance to the extent that I follow the NBA. There's a lot to like in Andrew Yang. I think you can say, look, he had, you know, got like, what, 1% in Iowa, 2%. He was getting 1%, 2% yesterday. You know, it wasn't going to happen for him, but he's still going to be missed for what he brought to this conversation. And if more Democrats in this world were more like Andrew Yang, um, Greg, I think you and I would be a lot less snarky. I think we'd have we'd feel a lot more kind of warm and fuzzy and respectful and, and much more. We, we would probably not feel that menaced by a Democratic Party full of people who thought and spoke and behaved and acted like Andrew Yang. Yeah, we'd probably actually have to spend a lot of time talking about policies instead of uh, getting sidetracked by all the absurdities uh, mentioned by these candidates who are just looking for attention. <coughs> Beto. Um, and so, <laughs> so, so, Jim, we're going to have a debate uh, trade here, basically. We're going to lose Andrew Yang and we're going to get Michael Bloomberg. I'm not sure I like that trade too much. But we also lost Michael Bennett. So your favorite aside of the 2020 Democratic primary season of, oh, by the way, did you know Michael Bennett's still running, is going to have to be retired. I'm sorry. Well, that was part one of it. The second one was Michael Bennett is a senator from Colorado <laughs> who really exists and is running for president. Yeah, that, that's, you know, it also Deval Patrick left. It was, last night was a big night for clearing out the detritus. Uh, mentioned Mike Bloomberg. Uh, so let's talk about Mike Bloomberg. He wasn't on the ballot. Still not going to be on the ballot in the next couple of states, but he's spending boatloads of money because he is on the ballot for some Super Tuesday states and beyond. And uh, he seems to be doing fairly well. The Quinnipiac poll shows him surging among uh, black voters. Uh, national polls overall have him into double figures now. So he's clearly uh, pushing Biden and now Klobuchar and Buttigieg for that center liberal lane, so to speak. Uh, but Mike Bloomberg's run into a little bit of trouble in the last couple of days over comments he made about stop and frisk. Now, Bloomberg also conveniently, while announcing his run for president last fall, announced that he suddenly was regretful of the fact that he deployed stop and frisk while mayor of New York City for 12 years. Uh, so this is from 2013. Uh, the very end of his time as mayor out at the Aspen Institute talking about why he did stop and frisk and why he thought it was a good idea. 95% of your murders and murderers and murder victims fit one MO. You can just take the description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops. They are male, minorities, 15 to 25. That's true in New York, it's true in virtually every city. So he basically said, when you look at 95% of murders and murderers and murder victims, whether it's New York City or anywhere else, uh, chances are it's a male minority between the ages of 16 and 25. You can just Xerox that and send it out to all the police. So that didn't go over well. And then these comments from 2015 came out. They just keep saying, oh, it's a disproportionate percentage of a particular ethnic group. That may be, but it's not a disproportionate percentage of those who witnesses and victims 
describe as committing the murder. In that case, incidentally, I think we disproportionately stop whites too much and minorities too little. Bloomberg's reaction to this is the reason this is the crazy martini today. So he sends out a statement yesterday saying, quote, I inherited the police practice of stop and frisk, meaning from Rudy Giuliani. And as part of our efforts to stop gun violence, it was overused. By the time I left office, I cut it back by 95 percent. But I should have done it faster and sooner. I regret that. And I have apologized and I have taken responsibility for taking too long to understand the impact it had on black and Latino communities. And then he goes into talking about the things he is doing for minority communities. So, uh, Jim, this would go a whole lot better if he hadn't been praising it well after he left office. Yeah, there are a couple of things that don't add up here. Now, for those wondering, why is Greg playing this really, you know, sketchy audio that doesn't sound very clear? Well, it's because it recorded at the Aspen Institute. And after people realized what Mike Bloomberg had said, uh, he asked that they take it down. Uh, Some people had kept it. It's still floating around the Internet. There's not really any dispute that he said it. But Mike Bloomberg would prefer that you not know that he said it. And I think the the part that really kind of jumps out here um, he, he makes his you know, he makes his argument. Yes, he's made his various justifications of this policy in the past throughout the, you know, the the Obama years. Let's keep in mind. But then he went a little bit further. And there's just a certain way that he puts it together. The way you get the guns out of the kids' hands is to throw them up against the wall and frisk them, and then they start. Oh, I don't want to get caught, so they don't bring the gun. They still have the gun, but they leave it at home. In Bloomberg's vision, if you are a minority youth in New York City. Black or Latino, between 15 years and 25 years, his ideal scenario is that every time you're walking down the street and a policeman thinks you look suspicious, he wants you up against the wall and frisked. Now, I don't think you have to be a crazy civil libertarian. I don't think you have to be, you know, the the attitude towards criminal justice reform has changed a great deal in this country in both parties, right? Um, The attitude towards the way police treat minority groups has changed in this country because of cases like Philando Castile. Because we've seen cases uh, of uh, Gardner up in New York, I can't breathe, things like that. There are reasons to look, wonder if the way you know police departments, and in particular the New York Police Department, the vast majority of whom are good guys with a very tough job and who try to do their very best in a dangerous world. But the idea is that at some points, if you're a young black man who's not done anything wrong, who has not committed any crime, you'd get really tired of being thrown up against the wall and frisked every time you left your house too. Right. The whole idea of the Fourth Amendment is there's supposed to be probable cause. Right. The fact that you're a young black man is not by itself probable cause. And that's why African-American groups got really up in arms about this. And this is why this could be really, really bad for Mike Bloomberg's ambitions to be the, the Democratic nominee. Now, if you want to if you want to say, you know what, over time, I reevaluated whether this was the best approach. Fine. New data comes in. You ask, you know, crime rates go down. Maybe you don't need to apply that approach anymore. Maybe you begin to wonder if this is necessary, if this, you know, maybe this gets people to keep the guns at home, but it worsens tensions between minority groups and the police department. You can come up with a just the whole idea of, look, I inherited this and then I, I never liked the idea. And by the time I was, you know, I, I almost got rid of it completely by the time I left. Oh, come on. Everybody knows this. Everybody can hear, everybody can hear the audio of you at the time being absolutely convinced that this is the right idea. I'm going to share an anecdote. Uh, I have heard from someone else who had a conversation with Mike Bloomberg. Uh, it was up in New York. It was when he was mayor. This person is not a fire-breathing conservative by any step of the imagination. A conservative, no doubt, um, but a very refined, Buckley-esque, shall we say. 
he makes Bloomberg's around, and, he, and Bloomberg makes some assertion, and he may, expresses some mild disagreement about what Bloomberg says. And the Bloomberg response is, "Oh, let's get real. I know you guys believe that stuff, but the fact is, blah 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 blah." And it was just so clear that Bloomberg believed no one else could genuinely disagree with his idea being the right one. He believed that everybody else's arguments were made in bad faith, were made in some sort of, you know, abstract ideological idea. Mike Bloomberg is absolutely convinced that he is the world's ultimate pragmatist and that it just makes perfect sense to ban large sodas. It makes perfect sense to restrict the Second Amendment every way you can. It makes perfect sense to ban dancing in bars and all, all of his ideas. He's convinced or like he believes that not only are they the right thing to do, they are the obvious right thing to do. And that only someone who is unbelievably stupid or only someone who is unbelievably evil could possibly disagree with him. This is the sort of mentality you develop when you become a billionaire, right? You get really used to people around you saying, yes, sir, that's a terrific idea. Because the vast majority of the people you interact with depend upon you for their paycheck, right? You stop running out of contrary voices. Nobody tells you you're wrong because you're a billionaire. And he's you know, spent so much time marinating in this environment that now he thinks he can say, look, I was never that big a fan of stop and frisk. And he thinks people are going to buy it. And it's, you know, there's a shamelessness here. I, again, I don't see a huge contrast with Trump in this. But anyway, that's, um, I, I think this will, I, there are many reasons Mike Bloomberg, I think is actually, you know, for, he was being underestimated. And now I think you're seeing the pendulum shift really far to be overestimated. I think he's the kind of guy that, for example, Bernie Sanders has been preparing to run against his whole life. Um, but it'd be interesting to see. It's it's to me. I think it's very revealing how quickly Mike Bloomberg runs away from what was one of the signature policies of his policies on police uh, during the twelve years that he was mayor. Well, Jim, like a lot of other Democrats, Bloomberg will have a lot of explaining to do as uh, he and a lot of the other Democrats try to gain some momentum with a whole bunch of states coming in the next three weeks. We'll be ready. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to visit our new sponsor, drinkhydrant.com. Put in the promo code MARTINI and get 25% off that first order. Please, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a kind review, and we'll see you Thursday on the Three Martini Lunch.